0: and welcome to The Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fosberu. This week's guest made headlines in 2011, when she was kidnapped by Somali pirates on a trip to Africa. Judith Tebbett and her husband David had set out on an adventurous holiday to Kenya. They'd been together for 33 years and met in Zambia, so Africa was a special part of their life. After a beautiful safari in the Masai Mara, They flew to a beach resort on the northern coastal region of Lamu, close to the Kenya-Somali border. And there, in the dead of night, the unthinkable happened. Judith was torn from David by a band of gunmen, forced over sea and land to a village in the arid heart of lawless Somalia, and held hostage for more than seven months in a squalid room, a ransom over her head. David was finance director for the publishing house Faber & Faber, and Jude discovered later... He wrestled one of the gunmen after she was kidnapped. Sadly, he was shot in the chest and died instantly. Over those 192 days as a prisoner, Jude lost the life she knew and loved, plummeted to the depths of despair and endured near starvation at the hands of the pirates, eating nothing much more than rotten potato. Yet somehow she found the strength to survive. Jude was quoted in the news recently after the sentence of a Kenyan man unfairly convicted of a role in David's murder was quashed. Judith is a patron of Hostage International, a small charity founded by Sir Terry Waite, which supports the families of hostages and former hostages around the world. And she's kindly agreed to share her remarkable story with us. Jude, it really is wonderful to meet you. The brief introduction feels like just a small, incomplete summary of how your life changed so brutally and what happened to you and David. And looking at you here, meeting you and having a cup of tea with you in the lobby today, it beggars belief, actually, what you've been through. So... I thought perhaps we could start slowly and maybe you can tell us a little bit about David and why Africa was so significant for you both.
1: Thank you for that lovely introduction. That was really nice. And thanks for asking me to be part of this Convex podcast. Why was Africa special? Africa is an amazing continent. I only know it, of course, through Zambia. I met David when I was there. I was married. Sadly, that marriage ended and I came back to England, but not before I met David, and who was he was an accountant. And he was part of the group of people that had said to me, You don't have to put up with the life that you are living, which was the catalyst for me leaving, leaving my husband and leaving Zambia. So when I left, I sent David a postcard. Because I I didn't go home directly because of course I was going home to my parents' home where I would have had to have shared a bedroom with my sister. I sent him a postcard and he sent me a postcard. He was holidaying in South Africa, and from that postcard there came a number of letters we'd write to each other every week. I still have them. One day Ollie will be able to go through them and read them, and that was the basis of our love story, really, and that's why we got together. It was a total leap of faith. I wasn't looking. I was looking to get out of one marriage, but not into another relationship. David had invited me down to where he was living at the time with his parents. I went down, spent two weeks with him, and there was just this, I don't want to leave him. I want to make my life with this man. And I had no idea where that would be, how that would be. Because when I first saw David, I didn't even know his name. I don't know who he was. But there was this very strange voice inside me saying, he's the one. It was really peculiar. But actually, it was true. I had this voice in my head saying, he's the one. And I didn't know him from Adam. So after that Christmas, I went down to live with him and his parents. And he got a job in Andover. And an amazing life together. There's nothing I regret about that time. We had an amazing life together. He was my rock. We were just very good people together. Then, of course, we had Ollie, who completed our little family unit. So to be taken f- from him, my total soulmate, I loved him so much, It was really hard. George and I were talking earlier about... How someone finds themselves, what they do when they're in that situation where you've had your life ripped away from you, as happened on that night, September the 11th, near Lamu. You have to redefine yourself. I guess for me, that started the moment I was taken hostage because I was no longer David's wife. I was a hostage. I had a price on my head. That was very evident that night I was told that they want money for me, which in a way was comforting because I thought, okay, David will sort this out. He won't allow me to be here for much longer. And certainly for the first two weeks where I wasn't aware that he had been murdered, that was my hope. That's what I hung on to.
0: So I suppose in a way, Jude, because you'd got a ransom on your head and you knew that, that probably gave you a little bit of comfort that your hostage takers planned to
1: to keep you alive. It did. Yeah, they needed to keep me alive in order to get the ransom. So that was a comfort. But of course, there were times where you forget you're a hostage. I forgot that I was a person because you're stripped of your dignity, your life, your husband, your family, you are nothing. They did everything they could to humiliate me, degrade me, starve me. But- Going back to the first two weeks that I was taken, I knew that they wanted money for me. That was a comfort, but at the same time, they wanted an enormous amount of money. I didn't know at the time how much they wanted. When I was told this, I remember thinking we can sell the house We've got a reasonably nice car. We've got money in the Halifax. So maybe this is going to be over. And I think it's my brain's way of normalizing the situation because I couldn't afford to become hysterical. That night, I was in a boat with five men, four of whom had guns trained at me. And I was wedged in the skiff as we were sailing off into the Indian Ocean. When I first arrived in Amara, where I was kept, I was moved to what I call big house, I was moved around quite often. And two weeks into that, I'm still thinking, David's still alive, There's must be a search party. And in fact, one day when we were, this was the first week and we were in the bush and they'd moved me from, because what they did to imprison me, if you like, they would make a hole in a large thorn shrub. Always had thorns on it, so I couldn't move. I was in a fetal position all day in the hot sun. Outside? Outside. I was outside. Yeah, for I was outside for the first week. So it's the
0: bush that was stopping you. Not that I presume you could have really escaped anywhere because you're in the middle of nowhere, but it was the bush that was it your was prison. The, pr- the yeah. thorns were the, your Yeah, it's
1: the first thing that they did whenever they moved me it was find a shrub, a thorny shrub. And they made a hole in it and and literally pushed me inside. And I stayed there. I was just in this tiny little fetal position all day. And at night, they would bring me out and they put this roll mattress thing down and I would sleep and they would sleep either side of me. It was a terrifying experience, but so going back to my point that David would be sending a search party out or something, they'd moved me this one afternoon and they were making tea and they were eating. They didn't give me any food. I wasn't fed for the first week. I was just given water. And it was early one morning, we'd sail through the night. They'd unloaded their skiff of bags and whatever they had, and they had wet clothes So they'd put all their wet clothes on shrubs hanging from trees. And they'd put this bright orange tarpaulin. They'd hung it over some branches to create shade for themselves. And I thought that is fantastic. Because if someone is flying around in the sky doing a search for me, they'd see this bright orange tarpaulin. And you know what? When the minute I thought that, they all looked up to the sky and the tarpaulin was dragged down, the clothes were dragged off, and within minutes you couldn't tell if anybody was there because there was nothing for them to see. Nothing to, to spot I'm, from uh, the air, really. This is what I take myself back and then I try and keep myself here but remember back. It's quite difficult, so I may babble a bit. I don't mean no, to. you're
0: not babbling at all. I just wanted, I suppose, for chronology... What do you remember of the actual night you were taken? Were you and David asleep when they arrived at
1: your accommodation? Yes, we were asleep. We'd gone out that night. We'd had some dinner in the restaurant and we were with the manager. And then we went back to the banda and the room where we were sleeping. And we'd got into bed. When we got into bed, we always used to hold hands falling asleep. And I was woken up by something hard metal prodding my upper arm. And I looked up and there was two guys standing here. They both had white vests on and they had AK-47s pointed at me. And I looked and David wasn't there. His light was on the other side of his bed. And I looked at these guys and the first thing I thought was, it must be security. They've come to move us. But then I was pulled out of bed. I remember we'd put the duvet over us because it was still quite cool at night and the duvet had been pulled away from me, they pulled me out of bed. And I could see David in the corner of my eye, and he had his arms raised above his head. And I thought, what's he doing? You have to imagine this all happened within minutes. I was dragged out of the bed, and then I remember shouting, what's happening? What's happening? And I looked at David, and I'd see he wasn't looking at me. He was looking at this other person. I couldn't see another person there. But I was pulled out of bed, down the incline, onto the soft sand, onto hard sand, and then they were running me in the ocean and then out. It's really weird how your brain reacts at this, because I remember thinking, this is good because I'm leaving wet footprints in the sand. So you're
0: already Already. going into survival mode in a way. Yes, absolutely. Even though presumably you woken from sleep. Deep sleep, Probably felt. Very surreal. It was surreal. And everything felt
1: very slow. But I knew I was running very fast because I tripped. And someone pulled me up by my hair. I reached back and scratched a hand or an arm or something. I felt flesh under my fingernails. And then they beat me around the head and pulled me up again and started running away from the bando that we were in. I could hear the waves crash onto the shore. And I could see this skiff, turquoise and white, just glide into it. I was thrown into the boat. I remember cutting my head. I still got a scar above my eyebrow. It started bleeding. And we waited and waited. But honestly, I was so calm. I was really calm. It was as if it was the worst nightmare. But of course, I had two men just looking at me with their AK-47s pointed at my chest. So I wasn't going to do anything. I wasn't going to make a fuss. I don't know what was going to happen next, but then two men, and these were the two men that were the last to see David alive. One of them or both of them shot him, I don't know, but I can see them in my head now. They got into the boat and the engine was fired up and we just sailed off at speed and I kept looking back to see if anybody had heard anything anybody was on the beach there was nothing kept turning back and the, until there was nothing I couldn't see the beach anymore I, we were just in the middle of the Indian Ocean
0: I don't like the term pirates and I know you don't because it no. glamorizes somehow yeah, you, you think like of pirates yeah, in a just criminal and in their murderers yeah but what were you thinking at that point when suddenly you've gone from sleep to being literally pulled away from David, and now you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean with, I would imagine, some fairly
1: unsavory characters very uh, who are heavily armed. Very. I started to negotiate. Did you? What happened was we were sailing out at speed, and the boat was slapping up and down on the ocean. Water was pouring into the boat and all over me and all over everyone else, and I heard this voice behind me say, would you like tracksuit bottoms? And I thought, oh my God, he speaks English. And I was honestly thinking, I need to see who this man is. I need to recognize this man because he's going to be useful to me. Which sounds a bit mercenary, really, but oh, in, in no situation, in the- <laughs> that doesn't sound mercenary at all. Um, so I looked around and I said, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. And he gave me tracksuit bottoms, and then I, I was given a black. Coat with a hood. I had to have the hood up all the time. They didn't want to see my hair. I had to have the drawstring really tight under my chin so they could just see my face. And so I said to this guy, You're making a huge mistake here. I'm sure you really don't want to get into trouble. If you just drop me here, me here, here." in the (laughs) middle of the Indian Ocean, I can swim back to sea. This is someone who couldn't swim the width of a swimming pool. But I was just grasping onto anything, really. I was trying to make sense of what was happening to me. And it all did make sense in the next sentence because I said to them, why are you taking me? And one of the two men that were the last to be with David spat in my face and said, money. And I thought, they want money. Okay, so this is doable. And that actually calmed me down a bit because I thought, so they want money. Okay, so they're going to take me. My mind was going round and round, trying to think of all these scenarios, trying to minimize, normalize things, get things calm in my head. So I knew that they wanted a ransom from that night. So that was in my mind. And as you rightly said before, it was comforting because I thought, okay, David will scrape together whatever they want and this will be over. And this will be a really unusual but funny dinner party story that we can dine out on. Sadly, it didn't work like that at all. I wasn't told. In fact, it was my son who told me that David had been murdered. When did you find that out? Due two weeks into my And how did you find out through Ollie? Was there some kind of
0: phone call or Yeah,
1: there was the criminal, the negotiator had made a phone call to I think it was the English consular in Nairobi, saying that they'd taken this white woman and they wanted fact I think they wanted twelve million dollars which is an insane, ridiculous, ludicrous amount of money for someone who doesn't have that kind of money. It's crazy. So the phone call was made and it came through to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as it was known then. It's now the FCDO. The local police rang my son's landline, which was a flat he shared with his then girlfriend. He wasn't there. He was working away in Glasgow on a job. He's a sculptor, creates things, And his girlfriend answered, and she's not here, he's at work. So then rang Ollie and said, the police are going to come and see you. They won't tell me what it's about, but it must be about something about your parents. This was in the middle of the night, and he was 25 at the time. And he received a phone call saying that we need you back in London tomorrow at the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Your father has been murdered, and we don't know where your mother is. We don't know whether she's alive or dead. Poor Ollie. I just cannot imagine how he must have felt or coped with receiving that news. So cold, no offer to take him to London. His boss actually drove him to London to go to a meeting the following morning where nothing much more was told to him. He was told that it was confirmed his father had been murdered. His mother, we think, has been taken by... Somali pirates or al-Shabaab. We don't really know whether she's alive or dead. And there's nothing more that we can do. To this point, you realize, and I know you know with your work at Hostage International
0: this is the case, it's not just the person that's going through all the horrors that you're going through as the hostage. The impact it has on family and loved ones is also...
1: Really tough, isn't it? It's immense because part of the reason I wanted to get involved in Hostage International is because of the families, because they go through that trauma. They don't live the same trauma as you, but they do live a trauma, and there's nowhere they can go with that trauma. There's no one that they can speak to with that trauma. How do I do this? I've been told that my husband has been taken in Afghanistan or Syria. I've told that my wife has been murdered in Nigeria. who, Who do you talk to? You can't talk to your neighbors. You can't talk to our government, depending on the circumstances. That's where Hostage International is absolutely vital. They understand. They don't go through it with you. They walk aside you as you're going through that trauma. They don't lead you. They don't advise you. They don't get involved in any negotiations or any political viewpoints. They're there solely for you and you can tell them anything you want to, any support that you need. And in fact, we still are supporting people who have been kidnapped decades before. It's never too late to come to Hostage International to get support because families do need it. And it's not just the wife or the mother. It's... The children. How do you tell children? Luckily, in my case, I I don't have any young children. I had Ollie. And luckily, Ollie was of sound mind. He was the one who stepped up and said, no, I will do the negotiations for my mum.
0: That's amazing. So you said you were two weeks in and it was Ollie who told you that David had been murdered. So did you have a phone call? Did they allow you a call with Ollie?
1: Yes, that's quite a story as well. I received a proof of life call. I was sitting in, I called it big house, which was a compound. I was in a room in a compound behind high concrete walls and big, huge gray iron gates. And I was in the end room, which was a room that was about 12 by 12, was covered in curtains. I can see the room now. And the curtains, they're gold with cream band in the middle. And in the middle, there are tulips. And there I counted 117 tulips. Wow. And I used to count these every day, part of my coping strategy. I received a, a, phone, a proof of life call. One of the pirates came rushing in, Phone for you, phone for you. I was expecting it because... That morning, the negotiator came in and said, you will be receiving a phone call. We want you to say this. And he'd written these things down. I, If I can remember this correctly, uh, my name is Judith Tebbert. I've been taken by Somali pirates. They want money for me. Please help. Those were the sentences I had to say. I said, okay. So there's a lot of faffing around, making sure that the phone was working. He came in and the phone wasn't working. Then to go out again so I received this proof of life call from, I assumed it was the consular. It was a man, very English sounding, wouldn't tell me anything about him. He would just, he was just verifying I was who I was and asked me these questions about, can you tell me something that only your family would know? And like family pet. and I said, Oh yeah, we had a family pet. So that was established that I was who I was. And he just said, thank you, Judith, for confirming that. And then the line went dead. And then now I can't remember. It was that afternoon or the following day that I received another phone call, another someone coming in, rushing your son on the phone. And I can't tell my heart just leapt. I, oh, it was just so special. And I immediately said to him, Hi, Ollie. How are you? Are you okay, mom? Yeah, I'm okay. And I said, how's dad coping with this? Because he won't like this at all. And he and Ollie said he didn't survive his injuries. And I said, what do you mean? He's... In... Are you telling me that he's dead? Yeah, but we must remember all the good times that we've had with dad. And he was protecting you. And I immediately went into mother mode. How are you? How are you coping then? How are you coping? I'm okay. How are you? Have they given you fresh water? Are you ill? Are they looking after you? Have they given you writing equipment? Have they given you a pen? How are you, How are you occupying your time? And no, they haven't given me anything like that. I've got fresh water. And he said, they want money for you, but I'm trying everything I can to get you home. It might take a while, but you've got to be strong for me. You've got to come home. I said, I will. I'll come home. I'm, you do what you can. I'll I'll come. Don't worry about me. I'll be all right. And then the lion went dead. To paint the picture, I was in this room and criminals in that room with me staring at me. The phone was taken from me and I just pointed to every one of these people. You murdered my husband. You murdered my husband. And I was just like some raving banshee. I just couldn't control my emotions. I was crying, a bit hysterical, but I was pointing to each one of these and I was so angry. And little one by one, they all left the room. So I was there on my own and it was dark. There's no natural light in this room. And I was left with this feeling that, so he's not going to rescue me. This is going to take longer than I originally thought. Ollie is there. He's relying on me to get back. So I'm just going to do whatever I can to get back.
0: In a way, Jude, was it Ollie that kept you going, knowing that you needed to obviously go home to him? And did you, in a way, almost compartmentalize your grief for David. Put it in a little box perhaps, because I would imagine it would be very difficult to grieve in that situation when actually what you're really trying your best to do
1: is survive. Absolutely true. I I couldn't think about David. I couldn't think about what I was going to go back to. I just knew I had to get back to England. So to do that, I had to keep myself as healthy as possible. I had to, I didn't know how long I was going to be there. I had this idea that I'd be there maybe six months to a year. Did you? Yeah, I did. In my mind, I think the year was something that worst case scenario. So I was mentally you were
0: preparing so Mentally yourself. I was
1: preparing to be in this for the long haul.
0: And so, what were your coping strategies? Because I think you did all sorts of things did, to get into a routine.
1: I did. To I go very, from... I was so much more organized then than I am now. Really? To be honest, can you Can you yeah. explain some of the things you did to
0: basically take what control you could... of Of the life you had and Mm. how you looked after yourself mentally as well, how you kept mentally strong because I know physically you weren't fed very much and I'm imagining Mm. your physical strength was Mm. on the wane perhaps. Yeah,
1: I think the important word is control because that's all gone. You have no control over what's happening in there. You can only control what's happening in the room that you happen to be in at that time, no matter how big or small. So what I devised a routine where I would walk round wherever I was, however small or however large, not that they were very large. I would walk for half an hour on the hour, every hour. That was my morning routine. Interspersed with in the afternoon was my thinking time. Because by that point, I had been given an exercise book. I'd been given pen and some pencils. And I started by thinking, okay, so what's my favorite band, favorite girl's name, favorite boy's names, favorite foods, making lists of flowers in the garden, anything to keep my brain occupied. Because when you're isolated, when you're in solitary confinement, there's no one else there to talk to, to bounce ideas off. You're there completely on your own in silence, in the dark. And it would be easy to get just for your mind... To wander and go mad. I think it would be easy to go mad. And from a personal point of view, I think it would have been very easy for me to go a bit mad in that situation. But because I was aiming to get back to Ollie, I couldn't, I didn't want to go back to Ollie being a complete wreck. I needed to keep myself, my body and my mind exercised and well. So my body, I was doing my walking. I also did a bit of Pilates. I don't really want to come across as sounding as a bit of a lunatic, but I had an imaginary hula hoop. Did you? I did. That doesn't sound practical, actually. <laughs> and I hula hooped. Amazing. But it's, it's funny smiley, now, but at the pilates. time, it was essential. Yeah, It can was imagine. really important that I did have hula hoop time, pilates time. I also created an amazing, I think it's an amazing game that... The first couple of days that I was there, the negotiator came, and I said to him that I want a, I want to learn some of the language. I want to be able to say, hello, thank you, good night, open the curtains, <laughs> open the door, which I did learn actually, but I, I can't remember now. But so he gave me this dictionary, and at the back of the dictionary was all the um, cities in the world and all the countries in the world. So I thought, I'm gonna memorize this, so, which I couldn't do because my I, I don't have a very good memory. So what I did do was all of the criminals that were around me, they all smoked. So through Ali, you remember the guy who said to me, would you like bottoms? Yes. I'd kept him in my radar. Whenever he came into the room, I would say, hi, how are you? I think it was important as well, to, I know I'm digressing a bit, uh, forgive me, but I remember wanting them to see me as a person. I knew that I was a meal ticket, and I knew that if the ransom was paid, uh, they would all get paid. But I wanted them to see me as a woman, as a mother, and someone who had a voice. He was on my radar. And I, so I said to him, I noticed that you all smoke. Can I have your cigarette boxes? Can I have cigarette packets? And I want some scissors. So he gave me cigarette, but I didn't get scissors, but they gave me cigarette, all their cigarette boxes. And I tore the cigarette boxes into tiny little strips of card. And with my pen, I wrote all the countries in the world on one one ticket. I call them my tickets. And all the cities of that country on another set of tickets. And on a Monday morning, which was the start of my week, I would laid out all the countries on the floor, wherever I was, however filthy the floor was, I'd lay them all out and then I would try and match the cities to the country. And on a Tuesday, I would do it reverse. I would lay all the cities out and the countries out and match them. And that took up a good two hours of my time, which was eating into these very interminably long days. I call that my fag packet project.
0: I think your fag packet project would make a lovely Christmas game for most children yes. actually. But it's fascinating to yeah. understand how you kept your mind active. Your routine, I think. I mm. can really understand you needing that routine of every hour I'll do. Definitely this to definitely. make time go. But how did you manage because I know they didn't give you a lot to eat, I think you ate mm. your fair share of rotten potatoes, I think. Mm. And I know that when you were released, you were painfully thin. Mm. How did you stay physically strong when you were presumably eating so poorly?
1: That became a problem after about four or five months because they were giving me less and less food. They were just small bowls of potato, a lot of which was just gray. And I was becoming weaker and weaker and I got ill. I was ill a couple of times. But in my head, I had to keep walking. And that's why I called my book A Long Walk Home, because it was a long walk home. But I was determined to do it, even though at this point, my feet were bloodied, they were blistered. When I was taken, I was wearing a vest top and some pajama bottoms. And eventually, I ripped pajama bottoms up to make bandages for my feet, because I had to keep walking. And I suppose... I just became very focused. That's the one thing that I had to do was keep walking because if I wasn't walking and I was just sat thinking of the enormity, what I'd lost, and the confusion and utter fear of what I was coming back to, I couldn't cope with that.
0: You were held, I think, for just a little bit more than seven months. It was was about six and a half months, Six and a half half months. So, how eventually did your release come about?
1: I didn't know I was being released. I had no idea because I was taken in September. from November onwards, every day, they would one of them would come in and say, "Get ready, you go home today." So every day you every you day might go home. I would be say I would be told that you get ready. you go home today." And I would be excited the first couple of days. this was great. The next day, they would come in. Either I would be told that I was going home. I was going to be shot. This was your last day. Or I was going to be taken and just left. And I was told that we can do anything we want, word for word. We can do anything we want to you. We can leave you in the forest. No one will ever find you. It's the mental turmoil of well as that. I spoke to Ollie five times in total. And one of the times... At the end of, it was about six months in, and there was a phone call. And every every phone call, he left me with a mantra, which I wrote in my books, which was, this is temporary. Just got to keep strong. Just got to keep walking, Mum. you get back home. And that was my mantra. But he had mentioned this one time that we're getting close to finding a figure that they're happy with. It's close. We're not there yet, but I want you to know we're close. And that gave me you know, enormous joy because I thought this is going to end soon. It's really odd. There's part of your brain that wants to believe that's going to happen. But then there's this little bit of your brain that thinks it might not. And you'd have false false
0: hope on a daily basis when they were telling you to get ready. You're being released.
1: There were three houses that I was moved to. And the person who called himself a negotiator came rushing in shouting, 21, 21, you go home 21. And I was very calmly, I said to him, now, do you mean 21st, which is actually a Wednesday? Or do you mean 22nd, which is the Thursday? He got really cross with me for actually challenging him about that. And he said, no, you go home 21. So I thought, Okay, here we go again. But I'd actually noticed, bearing in mind I was in solitary confinement and I couldn't actually see out fully. I used to lie on the floor. Whichever room I was in, there was a curtain, but the curtain didn't reach the floor. I would lie down with whatever is crawling around on the floor to see what was going on. And I'd noticed that the compound had been cleaned up. All the cigarette packets had been cleaned up. The washing line had been taken down. And I thought, maybe something is happening. Maybe. And do you know, speaking to you now, I can feel it in my tummy now. Can you? Yeah. That kind of, oh my God, this anticipation. It might be happening. Something is going to happen. And this was on the 21st. And I was told that afternoon to get my bags ready because we were going that night. And I thought, hey, okay, don't even dare think that. But I did get my bags ready. My bags. This is a black plastic bag. I was going to
0: ask what your bags were. I know. <laughs> it
1: sounds like you're on holiday you know, getting your beca- bags ready. They became so... I was really territorial about these bags. I never what was them. it? Just a black oh, sack? In my bag was a toothbrush that they'd given me, a baby toothbrush. My radio that they'd given me. Seven weeks in, they gave me a radio, and it was tuned to the world service.
0: Oh, perfect! Honestly, that must have been it a life was saver.
1: amazing. Did you
0: take your cigarette packets with your countries I on did, and your cities? Yes, I Were did, they in your bag? But they took
1: it all from me. Oh no! They took it all from me on the morning when I was released. But going back to that afternoon, so I had my bags there. I was dozing on this bench. Well, it was a mattress. Ali came in and said, "We go. You ready?" And I really, and in the dead of night, they took me out and there were four Toyota four by fours in a row and they pushed me into one of them and we started driving. And I thought, okay, is this really happening? I daredn't even think about it. We drove through the night and we came to a clearing the following morning. This really surreal, it was a beautiful moment, which sounds bizarre, but We'd driven through the night and it was about five o'clock in the morning because I could see the clock in the car. The car was stopped. They all got out and they started praying. And we were just in the desert and there was a pink sun rising. It was such like a really poetic, romantic moment because these guys all in unison were praying. To some, this may sound a bit weird, but I'd never seen that before. And it looked almost a ballet. They were all in absolute sync. And I was just stood there. And the air was warm, but cool. And it was a really beautiful moment. And it was very bizarre to share that. And I've just remembered it. Very um, poignant.
0: You've painted that picture very well. And again, what a surreal yes, time for you that here you are having gone through six and a half months of what you've gone through and you're wondering if you're going home Yeah, and you're almost, it sounds like you're in a painting almost.
1: It, it was unreal. And it, for a moment in time, it was really beautiful. But then we all got back in the car again and I got back and the men pointed their guns at me again and i was and we set off and it became reality and then we got to a clearing and there were lots of other men around there was lots of gesticulation and shouting and we moved to another clearing there was an air of confusion and i got a bit frightened thinking i'm going to be sold onto another group i'm not going home i'm going to be sold onto another group eventually i got to adadu i went to the mayor's house All of a sudden, this tarmac road appeared. We'd been traveling over desert and sand and everything for hours. And then the tarmac road appeared. We went to this compound again. I got a phone call from my son. It was absolutely amazing. He said, where are you? And I said, he says he's the mayor. I'm in his house. And he said, look, we think it's going to be on We think you're going to be released today. But if it doesn't happen, mum, you must promise me you'll stay strong. Just keep doing what you've been doing. But I should see you in a couple of hours. Oh, dude, that's made the Uh, hairs on the back of my arms stand up. I have a son too. um, And he said, look, there's going to be Guy. They're going to drive you to uh, an airstrip and you're going to be met by someone. He's going to tell you his name. Don't get into any other vehicles. Don't go with anyone else other than this man. He will identify himself for you and he's going to bring you to me. I'm in Nairobi. I'm waiting for you. God, I, I even now it's just... <sighs> it's still really... Oh, I can imagine. Hard to talk about. It's not hard. It, it was, but at that time, it was hard because I was there for a couple of hours and I was given food. I remember someone, I think it was a samosa. I was given a samosa, And, and, and a funny thing as as well, do you want to use the bathroom? I said, yes, please. And I went into this bathroom, this beautiful white pedestal sink and a toilet. Of course, there was no water. Oh. No. I couldn't wash my hair. I just looked at this. They were really, they weren't Strange pumped in or anything. moments, Jude. It
0: must have all felt <laughs> oh, very God. peculiar.
1: So then the mayor beckoned me to get into the car. I was in the car, back of the car by myself, so that this is different. And he was in the car with another man. And I've said, where are you taking me? Where am I going? Am I going to an airstrip? Where am I going? And he, they were just laughing. And he looked around. He said, we may sell you on. We don't know. And so I'm thinking, and I'm remembering what Ollie says. If I am sold, okay. And I'd really resign myself. If I'm sold onto another group, I just pick up where I left off. I've just got to get back. I've got to do this. I've got to keep strong. And so I'm looking for uh, one of those air pocket things, if by air, and I was thinking by airports. And I saw one and it was tiny and I saw it in the distance and we were driving towards it. And I remember thinking, oh God, please turn left. I'm not a religious person, so I was just thinking, I don't know who I was praying to, but we turned left, and I saw this little... Like an air sock. It, yeah, like an yeah, air sock, yeah. that's it, yeah. yes. And we turned left, and there were lots of people around, and I saw this like private jet aircraft, and this guy came out running towards me with a purpose, and he put his arms around me, and he told me his name. He said, I'm going to take you to Ollie. And I am in shock I'm not really aware that this is really happening because I wasn't excited. I didn't feel excited. I felt okay. I've just got this is what Ollie said. I've got to do so. I've got to do it. We got on the plane, and he said, "I believe you like green tea." I said, "I thought, who told you that?" He said, "Your son," and he's given you this letter, and I knew it was Ollie's writing. You can imagine less than probably 12 or 18 hours before. I'm in an absolute crap hole in Somalia on a filthy, smelly, damp mattress in the corner of a room. And here I am in this. Is this real? Is this really happening? I opened the letter and read it. It was from Ollie and the same, but wow. It was a lovely letter. And if you're reading this, you are hours away from meeting me and I'm shaking. (laughs) The plane took off. And I'm looking around, there was lots of wood and mahogany. And the guy said, do you want to get out? Because I still had this hijab that I'd had on. I must stank because I, I hadn't washed my hair for six and a bit months. They gave me water to keep my hands clean and clean my teeth and clean my face and clean my feet. I tried to look after my feet as much as possible. So the plane took off and I was given a green tea And I could see the pilot. He was about where you are now, actually. And he looked around and he said, we've done it. We're out of Somalia airspace. And the guy with me said, you're free. Wow. Oh, my goodness. What a moment. And then to set
0: eyes on Ollie again. That's me up.
1: I <laughs> know. Oh, it was just, it was amazing. We landed at Nairobi and I said goodbye to the person. He, he was from a private security company because at the time the, the government could not get involved in the situation at all. So I was met by this consular official, this very smart looking guy in a suit. And uh, we got in the back of a black car and there was a woman there. And I just didn't know, I still didn't know whether it was real. Because When I was in captivity, I had two times where I was convinced I was home. It was in my dream. I was watching Countryfile and I was stroking my cat Otis and I could feel the cat purring. It was so real. I was watching the TV program and then I heard the call to prayer and I woke up and I was back in the room. Then I was really nervous. Am I going to wake up? Is this a dream? I didn't know whether it was a dream or not. So I said to this woman who was another consular official, her name was Kelly. And I said to her, can I pinch you? And she said, sorry, I said, is this real? And she said, yeah, you can pinch me, love. It's real. And then she said, and don't worry, we've got lots of smellies back at the residency. I said, oh. I said I'm so sorry. I must smell. <laughs> I must absolutely stop. So I we landed and we're in this car driving through morning Nairobi traffic, giraffes wandering around on the road and women carrying their babies, going off to work. To- it was just as if everything, the whole world was happening and I was just released from Somalia and no one knew. It was just surreal, another surreal moment. And we got to the residency and another member of Jim Collins met me and said there's someone wants to see you upstairs. And I at this point, I'm five and a half stone, and really my feet are a mess. I could barely make it up the this beautiful winding marble staircase. So made it up to the staircase. Were you
0: just skin and bone? It, I was because you'd had yeah, so little I was. I was, nourishment. Was,
1: yeah, I just lost three and a half stone in oh, wow. all that time. I was there. You must and, have looked
0: so tiny. You're a very petite lady, but five stone. It was tiny, tiny. It was
1: awful because I won't get into too much detail, but I could see, I could track the veins in my hands and my arms and my feet you could know oh, the skin between my toes and my fingers had been falling just tearing off yeah some of my hair had been coming out but you were I alive was you were alive thank goodness you were alive i was alive That's, thank yes. goodness.
0: somehow in all That's that the, horror yeah. you managed to mm-hmm. use your mind and your mm. brain to take care of you in a dreadful situation
1: it was a horrible absolutely horrible situation
0: And is that where you set eyes on Ollie?
1: I just went up to him and put my arms out and I said, you did it. And he said, no, mum, you did it. And I said, we did it together. He'd received this phone call saying, get two bags of clothes ready because we don't know whether your mother is going to be released in Kenya or Ethiopia. We don't know. Just things, T-shirts and stuff. And he'd bought me a bag of clothes, which I put on. But of course, they were f- for a size like ten, what I was. But I was—I don't know what size I was. I said to him, "These can't be my clothes." Mummy said they're from your wardrobe. They are. I hadn't seen myself. Yeah, you There's must no have looked like a anything. child,
0: perhaps, to um, him, because you'd lost so much weight. He must have been so relieved and and so proud of you as well, Jude. He must have felt enormous pride that somehow you'd managed to make it
1: through not as much pride as I had in him. He was staggeringly amazing. He What he did at the age of 25, he made phone calls every day for six and a half months and I got five of them. And he had to speak with these people who were telling him that they were going to kill me unless they got money tomorrow. How do you cope with that at 25
0: yeah. and coping with the fact
1: that, of course, he'd, he'd lost, lost his father. father. Yeah. He's lost his father. He had to identify his father. He had to arrange his father's funeral.
0: That's he was, it's just,
1: he's just the most amazing human being. And going back to something we've talked about earlier, it is the family that go through it as well. And that's why we should never, ever forget that they go through the trauma with you. It's a different trauma, different level, different intensity. They go through it with you and they need support. And interestingly enough, and I've spoken to other former hostages, and we all say the same thing. When you are in that hostage situation, you concentrate on yourself because you have to get through that day. You spend as little time as possible actually thinking about your family, which sounds harsh in a way, but I knew that if I started to think of what Ollie was doing, was he eating? Was he getting support? My mom was her 80th birthday. Nine 20th birthday, I beg your pardon. And that would be all consuming. You have to concentrate on yourselves. And I think one of the ways that we work with family members is to actually try and get them to think about how to keep themselves safe and healthy for when that person is released. So
0: giving them a focus in the same give. way as you had
1: Absolutely. a focus. Yeah. You said yeah.
0: there, just jumping slightly, but you said there you spoke to other hostages. I saw photographs. You met Ingrid Betancourt, didn't you?
1: I did. Who what was, an amazing moment that she was. She was kidnapped by the Revolutionary
0: Armed Forces of Colombia yes. while campaigning for the yes. president as a Green yes. candidate. And I think she was rescued six and a half years later. So she w- that was an amazing, re-
1: if you've never read her book. I've never read her, her book, book. Was is she incredible. incredible?
0: And what was the conversation like between well, you and in Again,
1: another surreal moment, because here's another woman who's been in a situation, I have to say, different to mine, but parallels. As a woman, when I was a hostage. They take everything from you. They belittle you. They humiliate you. They degrade you. And that's what they did with Ingrid, myself, and other female and male hostages as well. But to me, she was the first female former hostage I'd ever met. So I felt that there was a connection there immediately because it has been said that some former hostages, we belong to a club that we really don't want to get very big. We don't want there to be loads of people in this former hostage club, but there is. I was amazed at how tiny she is as well, because in the book, she comes across as a really powerful, strong woman. And you'd have to be to last six and a half years. Six and a half months was in And I think I'm a pretty strong woman, but six and a half years is something else. It was an absolute privilege to meet her. It really was.
0: Did you swap a few experiences together? Well, did you have time? We actually for that? didn't.
1: We didn't have time. Yeah, we didn't have time, and it was her evening. was really. just nice to
0: feel that it was bond. her moment. Yeah. But also the bond as well. Working at hostage international with John McCarthy. Yes, who yeah. I was actually there when he was released at Ariel. I've so, listened to your podcast. You? With so it was him. wonderful it was to meet John again, and of course Terry, who yeah. founded the original yeah. charity. And you are members of a very small club that none of you actually want to be part of, but there must be something quite nice when you see them to have that connection and know that there's somebody out there that really understands some of what you went through, a kindred th- spirit perhaps.
1: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. There is there's almost like this hidden message. Okay, good on you. You got through it. Of course, mine is not comparable to what John and Terry went through, and that was horrendous situation. But you're right, there is a feeling that... I could talk to John or Terry or to a former hostage and say things that I know that they would understand. No one else really would understand. And again, that's not something that caseworkers in Hostage International, it's not something that they purport. They don't say we understand. They can't understand. No one can understand. But they can walk with you and support you. They don't have to understand the situation that you're going through to offer some guidance and support.
0: How did you rebuild your life and feel joy again? Obviously, through Ollie, there's joy. But you talked about David at the beginning being your soulmate. And I'm imagining once you got home and you were safe, then presumably you allowed yourself the time to grieve. It's only 12 years ago that you were released. How have you managed to, after your long walk home, find some joy and cope with not having your partner in
1: crime alongside that's been really hard. I think those first initial moments where I actually got home, I still had my cat and it wanted to be fed. So I life, was dropped Life at had home gone on. <laughs> and the cat wanted to be fed. Yes. And I remember at that point walking through the house and I was touching the walls, touching the sink and going into the rooms, the bedroom where David and I shared, the house we shared, going into the kitchen. It felt lonely and empty but i put my family first and thought i can't crumble it would have been so easy it would have been really easy just to say i can't do anything i'm not leaving these four walls ever again but life is really precious and i could have been killed so i viewed it as this i was alive and i should not take that for granted i just simply had to get on with things I was brought up in a household like many of us. You just get on and do stuff. But you mentioned the word joy. I did not have joy for many years. I don't think I felt anything for many years. I think what happens a lot if you have PTSD is, and I'm not saying that I did. I may have done. I don't know. I disassociated myself from me and my feelings. I just got on and did things. I went food shopping. I saw my family. Seeing my family was really difficult because how do you talk about what you've been through? I had to go and see David's brother. How do I say? I remember saying to him, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that this has happened. But gradually, slowly, over the months and years, life gets more meaningful, you find a purpose. And one of the purposes for me was I became involved in Hostage UK as it was back then, about eight years ago, I think. It was like a bit of a mission to say this happens, hostage taking happens. And so I would give talks at almost every opportunity I had because I wanted people to wake up to the fact that It happens to normal people. I wasn't a journalist like yourself in some war-torn country. I was on holiday with my husband. We'd enjoyed a week's holiday and then wham, bam, your life changes and it will never be the same again. People should not get too complacent about life, really. It's precious. I wrote my book very quickly. That was very cathartic. And I moved house, which was a risk, because I'd shared that house with David, but I found there was just too many memories in that house. He was there all the time. I could still smell him. I could still feel him. His clothes were there. His shoes were there. When you, aside from me being a hostage, when you lose a loved one like that for months and months, I was genuinely convinced that David was going to come through the front door and say, this was all. Horrible mistake. I was gonna wake up and it had been this horrible nightmare. I really believed that.
0: No, oh, I could understand that. And what also you did is you were instrumental, I believe, in Ali Kalola's conviction being overturned. It was he was a Kenyan man, wasn't he, who'd he been was. Yeah. wrongly convicted for robbery yeah. with violence linked to yes. your kidnap. But Was it right that you thought he'd perhaps been made a scapegoat and was the wrong man to be in prison and lent your voice to that?
1: I, I wanted to give my voice to the fact that he was not given a fair trial. And I got involved with Reprieve, a human rights organization, who had been supporting Mr. Kalolo and the Kenyan lawyer there. And I felt very strongly that the very least that he should receive a fair trial. This is a guy who does not speak or read English, and he was given the prosecution statement in English an hour before he was due in court. He wasn't offered an interpreter. He wasn't offered a lawyer That's not fair in anyone's book, whether it's in Kenya, in England, America, Canada, Europe, anywhere. It's not fair. He did not receive a fair trial. And that was what was really important. That was paramount to me that he received that. I wasn't sure what would be the outcome of that. Of course, I was hoping for him to be freed because I believe, I really do believe that he was not involved in any of the people that took me and murdered David. And I'm now less angry about it, but I do still feel that he was put in prison. Everything went dead. And there was no search for David's murderer, no search for the person. Could have been one of two people who I identified that murdered him. I identified, I don't know whether I should be saying this on podcast, but I identified seven members of the group that held me, including the negotiator. I haven't heard anything. It just went dead. It just seemed a bit weird that they'd got this, okay, we've got this person in prison. That's it. That's done. done. Closed and done. You. So I was really thrilled. That his case has been overturned and I understand that he's now back in his village, being supported by his village. That's
0: lovely to hear. Judy, you tell your story so well and thank you for reliving some of it because I know it's not always easy. And I could see in your face and your eyes, I could see Mm. when you were describing the tulips on the curtains Mm. that you've still got very strong visuals Mm. of all that. We've ended, and I don't know whether I thought to mention this in advance, and if I didn't, I'm so sorry, but we have ended every podcast this season with a question about the biggest risk you've ever taken in your life. Now, John McCarthy, I felt a little uncomfortable asking John that and Mm. he was the first person I asked it because he just told me like you have, you know, about his incarceration and it felt a strange question, but his answer was really interesting. John said the biggest risk he'd ever taken in his life was going back to Lebanon because he didn't want Lebanon to be a big scary place in his life. You mentioned risk there when you sold your house that you shared with David, but I wondered if there is something in your life, it doesn't necessarily related to the story you've shared with me today, but is there a risk that comes to mind that you feel was a risk you took in life?
1: Well, I am pretty risk averse these days. I don't like taking risks. I've never taken risks. But I, get, I guess one of the biggest is actually getting up every morning because it's a risk in that... I suppose, no, I will go back on that. It's not getting up on a morning. The risk is going back too far in my memory. That's a risk that I am always worried about, that if I go too far back in my memory, I'll get stuck there. And that's based on the fact that I do occasionally have flashbacks and they freeze you, they debilitate you. And I have those flashbacks when I think about where I've been and the impact it's had. And having to relive it. That's a risk for me.
0: That's a, a very good answer. Thank you for taking a risk today, Jude. Yeah. You've been very generous with your story, and I sit here just in awe. You know, you didn't choose to be a survivor, you didn't choose to be a hostage, but somehow, you know, tiny, diminutive, beautiful person. I can see that. And somehow you dug to the depths to survive. And it's an an incredible story. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to listen and have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me as well. And thank you for making me feel so comfortable. Oh,
0: you're very, very welcome. You have been listening to Jude Tebbett's incredible story. And if you'd like to learn more, she did mention there her book, A Long Walk Home, about her experiences and the story behind that title of all the walks she did despite how tiny the rooms that she was held in were. So uh, a long walk home. I'm sure you'll find it in all the usual places. Do download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to yours. And also, another quick mention there for Hostage International, if you want to learn more about their work, then do go to their website. I'll be back next week. Join me then.